Um, we're going to take some time and just kind of work through some of the stuff that we've just talked about because there's a couple of key concepts that are vitally important to understand this model. Um, I told the church here yesterday this, so I want to tell everybody this. Uh, you can think that this is uh, simple and that you understand it, and I'm just here to tell you that it's deceptively different than what you think. Let me just say that again. It is deceptively different than what you think. And the whole mental DNA about how to church, do church at the end of the day is really different. Now, we're going to end up talking more about that in terms of you know, relationships and relationships focused for everybody in the church, everybody engaged in discipleship. But before we do that, we're trying to lay a foundation here. So Jim and I are going to jump into a couple of these things. But before we do that, let me just see if anybody had any questions uh, from the first session, that, uh, that just burning questions you'd like to address. Yes, John Smith. Have you seen a great difference in sort of these trends and statistics between communities that are affluent and, or communities that are going through poverty? Not a great difference? No. Um, unfortunately, what you're seeing is... Um, just the whole definition of success in both the affluent and the, the poor uh, context, the, currently, the better the show, the more that attend. And, but the show will look different. You might have, in a very poor area, a great speaker who promises that if you send in your seed money, God's going to bless you in this way and they'll have a very emotional service and he'll be a very dynamic speaker and he'll promise the people what they want to hear and he'll have a very large crowd. Whereas if you are in an, an affluent area already, they typically don't talk about uh, you need more money sort of a thing. They, they'll talk about how God can help you to continue to be successful in your business. And But still, it's, it's all about the, uh, contextualizing the show. Figure out what the people want to hear in your area and then give them what they want. Let me add something, too, about the statistics that Jim shared with you. You may not know this, but uh, somewhere around um, 70% of all Canadians who attend church attend Roman Catholic churches. So when you look at those statistics, bear in mind that you're probably talking nationwide uh, you know, attendance at Protestant churches about 7%. Uh, I know Henry was mentioning in Vancouver it's 3 to 4% where you are. Uh, somebody had shared with me statistics before that Calgary, we think it's somewhere around 7% or about 70,000 uh, would be attending evangelical churches. So when you think about that, those numbers are, are, are not, not great. And I'll tell you this too, uh, as somebody who's lived here in Calgary and then now lives in the United States, I live in the buckle of the Bible Belt and I will tell you this. So I live in the buckle of the Bible Belt and 23% of people attend church. Now if you survey people and you say, if you ask them, do you attend church, the number goes up to 43%. But when you actually check out the real numbers who actually attend church regularly, it's 23%. So there's a massive change going, going on in our culture. Any other uh, questions before Jim and I jump in with a couple of the key concepts here? Jordan? Is 
What's the reason why people are leaving the churches? Jim, why don't you answer that? And then um, I might add a few cents of my own. What is the reason the kids are leaving the churches? Or what is the reason that people are not feeling that they experience God in the church? Well, I would say this, that our system of, of um, church, in America at least, inoculates them from ever really catching the real thing. They get a little dose of something that makes sure they'll never get the real thing. Uh, they think they know what Christianity is, and it's going to a church service, and it's um, you know those kinds of things. But the truth is, until you have a relationship with other believers, and until you are serving God, and experiencing Him through that relationship, and experiencing Him through service, you never really experience God uh, and Christianity the way it was designed to be experienced. Therefore, when you go to church, that's all you do. You, you don't really experience Christianity. Therefore, it's pretty easy to leave. You know, when it's a show, don't be surprised that people are going to go find the best show in town. And even if it's a good show, they'll get bored of it. I only watched Star Wars so many times before I've, I've seen it, and that's great. And, you know, so they don't really have relationships with each other. It's very um, make believe. How you doing? Fine, fine, fine. How's everything? Oh, good. Um, most Christians don't see it as their responsibility to share their faith. They see it, if I'm really spiritual, I'll bring people to church so the pastor could win them to the Lord. Therefore, the pastor will experience God as he does that, but they really never do. And if you never experience God and, and the Holy Spirit at, on the front lines, you, you're missing out on what Christianity is all about. It's not very exciting. It's actually kind of boring. I would add to that, Jordan, <clears throat> just giving it a sort of um, statistical or um, – I don't know what to describe it, so I'll just tell you what it is. Stephen Neal documented this in Great Britain over the last hundred years. Uh, there's a guy named James Dean Kelly who did it in the United States. Reginald Bibby has done it somewhat in Canada. Here's the common factor. What Jim is saying is the heart of the thing. Here's how it manifests itself. Typically, you'll have churches that uh, compromise on the word of God and they're – as they're compromising on the word of God because they want to fit into the culture. Uh, so they start compromising to fit in. But what happens is people say, well, if we're just compromising to fit in, why bother with church? So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, some, some folks did some studies on, is basically the equivalent of the United Church of Canada. And I'm going to say this because uh, when I was a little boy, I, my parents took me to the United Church of Canada. And uh, uh, I had to actually go by that church building last summer and ask God to forgive me for my attitudes toward them. But when you grow up in these contexts where they don't teach the word of God, children are not raised up to have convictions. The people who are part of the churches aren't raised to have biblical convictions. Then they just feel like, well, why bother? And over time, they just slide away. And I will tell you this, the biggest predictor of where you end up is going to be how you view Scripture. If you have a low view of Scripture and you interpret away significant teachings in Scripture, over time you will raise up churches that don't have conviction. And that's the story in Canada. Last time I heard, they predicted by 2030 the United Church of Canada, for example, will be dead. I would say something a little, I would say add something to that. It's true that when you have low view of Scripture, 
it leads, I mean, in America, the mainline denominations are actually joining to make it look like that they've kept their numbers. So these two denominations are actually folding into one. But the truth is that um, we're just as guilty in some ways of conforming. Uh, we may not, as it pertains to, is Jesus part of the Trinity or is homosexuality sin, but we give our people what they want. You know how many pastors I hear say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Bible is the Word of God, but our, two pe- our people are too busy to be in relationship with each other. Our people are too busy to, to uh, do that. And our people, you know, they don't know enough to got, actually go out there and serve. And our people, you know, and all the little things they talk about, about methodologies and what a Christian ought to look like, they conform on that in practice part. They've got the head knowledge right, so that, you know, we've got to have the right view of Scripture and all that. But when it comes to living out your faith as a believer and what that looks like and what I actually expect my people to do, well, they can't do that, and I've got every kind of excuse for that because they're just too busy or they don't know enough or they don't, they don't have a Bible college degree or blah, 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 blah. And so we, we just say, hey, your job is just to come to church. Sit and listen, and you're really spiritual if you drop a tithe check in, and you're really holy if you actually become an usher. And we let them get away with it because we, want to, we don't want to run off the, the 80% of our church that doesn't serve. One of the missions we work with is in uh, Africa, in the dirge, uh, Ethiopia. The communists took over. And the Christians went underground. Most of the people just floated away. But the, the, the sincere Christians went underground, and it blew up. It grew. When we don't want to run our people off because we don't want to demand that they deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Christ... And we don't say, listen, if you're too busy to be in relationship with other Christians because your kid's got to go to soccer practice, you're too doggone busy. Grow up or, or get out so we can fill the seat with somebody who wants to be sincere. Jim, uh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about um, the um, reason why you would say that. And that is because of the supposition that the primary thing that needs to be going on in churches is we are disciples who are learning to really follow Jesus and to make disciples of others. So let's talk about this whole question that the primary purpose of a church is discipleship. Um, many of you uh, read Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church. Many people read that book. Where he talks about the five purposes of the church, and discipleship is only one of the purposes of the church. Uh, so I'd like to um, just ask your comments about that, Jim. I, by the way, I love Rick Warren. Great guy. But we're not, discipleship isn't a component of the church. All those other five principles he came up with fit underneath discipleship. Discipleship isn't just one component. We talk about discipleship as a head knowledge thing. Discipleship means I'm going to teach, uh, you know, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, you know, the, the books of the Bible. And I'm going to tell the story of Israel. And they're going to know Josiah. And did Josiah come before Samson? Or, you know, and, or, or they're going to understand the Trinity. They're going to understand, you know, um, all those, those things. That's discipleship. It's education. No. Discipleship is the entire purpose. And everything fits underneath that. A disciple worships God. A disciple knows the word. 
A disciple gives. Discipleship affects every part of your life in what you think, in who you are, and in what you do. Jesus said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we're going to talk about my definition of a disciple later and alignment. But, but here's what I'm saying to you. We weren't called to make church attenders who go to discipleship class. We were called to make disciples. And so uh, that affects the head, the heart, and the hands. What I think, who I am, and what I do. All aspects fit under discipleship. Marriage and family. Parenting. Discipleship. Tell me a little bit about those. How would parenting or, say, marriage, since uh, you know all the statistics say that, that marriages in the church are just the same as the marriages in the world in terms of staying together, happiness, and all those things, how would that tie in, something like marriage? All right. Well, when a person becomes a Christian, what's their definition of love? What's the world's definition of love? Romance. Romance. Sex. Feelings. Feelings. But agapao in the Greek is, a, is the word we have for God's kind of love, which says it's an act of the will to die to yourself and to, to give what the other needs rather than be about self, to think of others more highly than you think of yourself, to deny yourself. The world says find yourself. Jesus says deny yourself. Well, when we say, hey, Jesus is the Son of God and he died for you, great, let's baptize you, now go sit down and come back next week. They're in the middle of a, of a marriage, or they're going to get married, that, you know, they're, they're, they were handed a box from their parents about what marriage looks like. About what sex looks like. Sex should look like that movie I saw on television. Very intense. Filled with passion. What happens when I've been married for 15 years and it doesn't look like that? You go find somebody else. When you don't meet my needs, you complete me. That, that's what, you know, the whole Jerry Maguire thing. I must have heard that a thousand times. You complete me. The, yeah. Show me the money. Yeah. So, so here's what I'm saying to you. That's their view. Now, what we tend to do is we go, we need to teach them the Trinity. Seven essential doctrines of the faith. We need them to know why baptism from the Baptist is an outward sign of an inward change and we are baptized for the remission of sins and there is a difference. We talk about theology, theology. Who's going to talk to them about what it looks like to die to yourself to love your wife? That's discipleship. Now how would I know? Should I just have a class and let them come and, and I'll just teach? I'll just do all the talking how do I know whether you're a mature disciple? Well, you're on the rule book. You took my marriage and family class. No. I would know whether you're the kind of husband you need to be because I'm in relationship with you. And I know your wife. And I've seen you. And I've modeled for you. And I, and, and I hold you accountable. And I teach you what it means to die to self. Who does that in the lives of people? We just send them to a class and we teach them some new information, but they have no idea how to actually live that out in real life. So they're really smart and they get to be an elder. Why? Because they know the seven bodies of water in Israel. They know the history of Israel. They took in every class. 
but you don't know what they're like at home. You don't know who they are. You don't know what they struggle with. You don't know what their secret sin that calls them at night is. Maybe they shouldn't have one. No secret sin. No struggles. That's a lie. Everybody in this room has an addiction or something they would be addicted to without the help of the Holy Spirit and accountability. Every one of us has sin that we deal with. Now, some of us put on a good face and act like we don't, which is why we've created a culture in church where everybody's got to be perfect. So if a sinner comes in, they're like, dude, I don't, I don't feel comfortable in here because everybody's perfect. They all got their life together. Do they? A lot of us think our credibility comes from the, our perceived perfection as pastors. That's why we don't let anybody too close to us because if they get too close to us, they'll know what I'm really like. So I'll just keep you out there. Instead of, I struggle, I battle, here are my battles, would you hold me accountable? We're fellow human beings, we all struggle. We're all trying to grow. Will you apply that down to parenting as well? How do you parent? What is the biblical way to parent? What is it? Do you think these people that come to know Christ know how to do that? And they're dealing with that stuff right now. They need help right now. It's usually life circumstances that breaks people to the point where they'd receive the gospel message anyway. Now we just give them the gospel and it takes away all the problems. Now they don't have to go home to their kids and try to parent their kids that they've totally messed up on for the last eight years. Well, they can come to a class next week. Well, they got questions. Who do they call in the middle of the week? Who do they do life with? Well, I'm too busy. I got this job and I do this sport and I've got this hobby and I've got. That's not discipleship. Great story. I had an NFL football player come to my group. And uh, I'll never forget, I was talking about discipleship. Jesus said, Come and follow me. And, and then he said, Come and be with me and do life with me. And I was talking about. You know, so many of us want to be converts, but we don't want to be disciples. And and this guy, he's a huge black guy, and he's getting visibly upset. And he's starting to shake, and he's got tears running down his eyes. And I go, dude, could you, there's like eight, ten guys in the room. I go, dude, could you tell me what's bothering you right now? He goes, you know, several years ago, I came, I went to a church. And this guy just just recently started coming to our church. I went to a church, and I and they had this men's thing, and they said, "Come up and uh, give your life to Jesus." And I went up and I gave my life to Jesus. And they, uh, you know, they had me fill out this stuff. They gave me a Bible, and they said they'd call me. Well, I was in the middle of trouble. My marriage was falling apart. My marriage was I I I, I, I was losing it all, and that's why I even went. Well, they didn't call me, so I started calling them. I started calling them. Three weeks later, I'm still calling them. They don't call me. They said, listen, don't tell us that we need to be discipled. Tell your disciplers because they don't have time to disciple us. That's what he said. And he was just that animated. And he's a huge man. And we were all like, ooh, he's going to beat us up. He goes, you know, I lost my marriage. And I'm not saying it's anybody else's fault. But they just say, come to church next week. Well, I'm sorry, going to a church service, sitting there, doesn't help me in my life right now when I don't know what to do. 
So I tell elders, don't call yourself an elder because you sit in a room and make decisions. God curses the shepherds of Israel because they don't chase the strays, bind up the herding, feed the sheep. Eldership is not a privilege, it's a responsibility. And few should be teachers and preachers, for they incur a stricter judgment. We are called to pastor and shepherd and care for people. And when it becomes a job, a position, a title, instead of doing what we've been called to do, it's no wonder the church is in the state that it's in. They, people get baptized, they're spiritually dead, now they're a spiritual infant, and we leave them in the nursery, and we expect that they're going to grow up to be spiritually mature and to make a, a statement to anybody that God is good. They're barely saved if they were ever saved. Tell somebody grows them up, it's like having a baby, putting them on a couch, saying, there's the refrigerator, feed yourself. We'd never do that. That's child abuse. That's what we do to brand new believers. And then we wonder why they never grow up to be spiritual giants when they could have. They were left on the couch. When fellow Christians are hurting, and we're all too busy, and we say, go to a class or come to a worship service, and that good preacher will help you. No, it's only when we do life together as brothers and sisters, ministering to one another, carrying each other's burdens. It's all biblical. It's just not easy. We don't go to church. We are the church. And when we lead in that manner, it is no wonder our people are broken hearted and they look like crud to the rest of the world. Because they are broken. Where are all the physicians? Well, that's God and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. They'll do it. Well, then why, why, why the church then? If we don't, we're not supposed to play a part in it. It's God's Spirit, God's Word, and God's people make disciples. All of them. Sorry, I, I get a little frustrated by that. But that was one of my buttons. <laughs> Button. Um, I want to uh, just press a little bit here on the concept of discipleship being the underlying purpose behind everything that's done in the church. So let me just um, press that out just a little bit for some of you. Um, so here's the idea. If I'm really a follower of Jesus, then I'm going to worship God the way Jesus did. If I'm really a follower of Jesus, then I'll learn to minister the way Jesus did. If I'm really a disciple of Jesus, then I'm going to experience fellowship the way Jesus did. Kind of reflecting on you know, the different things that you think are the purpose of the church. Now let me just back up, and I want to read a statement uh, to you. Um, I read it for the folks here last night. Richard Longnecker. I was joking. I said he's he's a pretty good scholar. And by the way, he's a Canadian. Uh, Richard Longnecker wrote a book a few years ago uh, just addressing the whole concept of is discipleship the fundamental thing that the church is about? And he had this statement about uh, the New Testament. Um, He says this. In reality, discipleship is the major fundamental an underlying theme of the entire New Testament. Everything in the New Testament is to help us to trust and to follow Jesus Christ. When Paul writes Colossians, he wants them to have proper knowledge so that they walk worthy of the Lord. That's discipleship. A lot of times people will fixate on Matthew 28, and it's a good place to fixate on. But some people have said, well, that's not really saying the purpose of the church. It's actually describing the purpose of the community of faith. 
And the community of faith at that time was the disciples. And so Jesus said to them, literally, as you're going, make disciples. That's the imperative. The participial phrases are baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, everything I've commanded you, by the way, and surely I'm with you always, so the presence of the Holy Spirit to the end of the age. So I will tell you this, that I, I struggled a little bit in the early years of my faith with, you know, is really the purpose of the church discipleship? Um, I had, uh, you know, been around some people with uh, uh, International Churches of Christ, and they kept hammering that, and I think that sometimes they did that in an unhealthy way. And I said, well, how does that relate to loving God? Doesn't the Bible say the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Yeah, but you know, you have to be taught how to do that. You have to be discipled into that. And so I'm very comfortable now realizing the fundamental thing the community of faith is about is discipleship behind everything. I spent some time with Jim Harris, who's the marriage and family minister at uh, Real Life Ministries. So I got him aside and I said, well, Jim, what do you do? What do you do in marriages? He says, oh, it's the same thing. I just disciple them. I disciple them in marriage. And he walked me through what he does, and it's really a cool thing. So I don't know if anybody has any questions about that, uh, but just laying it down as a foundation as we begin that the fundamental overriding purpose of the community of faith is discipleship. Anybody have any questions or comments, concerns about that? If not, Jim, why don't you go on and talk to us a little bit here about I want to show you there's three different models that I see uh, well, I see mostly two models in the church uh, in America. I see what I call the showman model. You've got the star on top that gathers the crowd. The systems are set up around this person's personality. The Sunday school classes, you've got the ushers, all the children's ministry that put on the kids' shows. But it's all gathered around a model of build it and they will come, so to speak. You see what I'm saying? Uh, you got the radio ministry. You got guys who work in the church to put it out on radio, what that guy's speaking. So it's get the personality out there because they're the best evangelist, the best soul winner. See, let me just say this to you, and I don't, I don't want to offend anybody here, but I want to make I want to tell you what my opinion. I would never hire an evangelist in a million years because that implies that it's his job to evangelize. Whose job is it to evangelize? Every Christian. When you raise up and equip every Christian to go out into the world and make disciples, you're unleashing an army. You see what I'm saying? Ministers, here's the second model. A lot of the churches I work with call them pastors. You, you call them ministers. Okay. The ministry model is, these are my people in here that do all kinds of different things, but my job is to pastor them and care for them and minister to them, to go to the hospital for them. In this group, it's a program. I'm just going to make it as good as I can, and people will come because they want to. I'm not really responsible for chasing the strays or ministering to them. I've got a class for them. If they're a mess, they should come. I don't have time to meet with them because... uh, Uh, I'm busy spending 30 or 40 hours a week working on my sermon, my show part. I've got to do a good job, have the music just right. I've got to create an 
an atmosphere, uh, videos and technology, and I'm not against doing things the best you can do, but it's got to be all this thing because I'm going to gather them and it's their job to come. If they disappear, that's their problem. And this job, this, and by the way, these become the bigger churches if they do a good job here. This church describes the 90, the 100, the 150 churches usually. Because what they care about is that pastor will go to the hospital every time. Anybody that's in that church, they will care about. They love God and they love God's people. These people are, can be t- typically egotistical. These people are typically servants. But here's the problem. How many people can a pastor truly pastor? All the physical needs, all the marriage, marriages that are in trouble, all the kids that are going crazy, all the, how many can they actually take care of? 90, which is why 90% of churches are 90 or less. Instead of equipping people, training them and releasing them so that it can expand, if this is how, this is the weight, this is all the people up here, this is the weight. He can only carry the weight for that much. If you put too much more weight on it, what happens to that pastor? <clears throat> you see it? But if he increases the width of the bottom, what happens to the top? You see it? You got the showman, all-star model. You got the minister model. This is the model that I believe in. Here's what I believe. The front lines are every Christian that go to our church. Here's the front line, where they work, where they live, where they go to school. They, our people, are interfacing on a daily basis with those people on the front line. Therefore, my job as a leader is to set it up so that this guy is, is caring for these people. This guy is caring for these people. This guy is caring for these people. The general's job in a church, or in a, in, a, in, a, in a war, is to make sure that there are systems set up that your soldiers have their guns, their ammunition, their food, everything they need on the front line to win the war. They're the ones who interface on the front war. Do we have any military guys in here who have been on the front lines? Okay, well, those who have, they, they've had good leaders and bad leaders. The leaders that were good leaders did their job to make sure that the system, these guys, this is where the war is won, right here. Therefore, these guys exist for these guys. In this model, this guy exists, or these guys exist for this guy. In this model, this guy exists for these guys, but but he's not reproducing, he's not systemizing. In this model... This guy is caring for these guys who are caring for these guys who are reaching out to those guys. This is the front lines. When you release an army, an equipped, trained army on a community, they just sweep through. People ask me, how in a little community like ours did we get to 8,006 more churches that we don't even count in those numbers? We raised up disciples who made disciples. Then they were able to make disciples. Then they were able to make disciples. And pretty soon they've got their people everywhere and they're all over the place and they're taking over the whole town. And I have no idea what they're doing half the time. And then there's a lot of pastors who go, oh no, we've got to control it. I mean, you can't, you can't have that. It could get out of line. Well, you do your best to, to bring about accountability. But I want you to imagine what it looked like in the first church. 120 in the upper room. 
3,000 in one day baptized. You tell me how they took care of 3,000 people in one day. Went from, zero, from 120 to 3,000. Was it a little crazy? A little disorganized? Did they start having battles right away? Didn't take care of the Greek widows? Did they have to come up with a system to take care of that? Yes, they were raising up people to raise up people. Pretty soon, people are going to Antioch. Philip's going to Samaria. you got people taking off all They're being raised up. They're being invested in. Now they're saying, now you go. You see what I'm saying? There are three models of church. And the question is, it's so funny. How we happened on this too is, this would have been the model that I was most inclined to with a mixture of this and this. I felt like this, but I knew I couldn't take care of all those people unless we had systems. And I also knew that people would at least initially come for a good show, but then we'd be able to make disciples out of them. You see what I'm saying? So we'll catch them with the show, and then we'll get them involved in these other things. And, and uh, uh, again, I'm not against doing a good job on Sunday morning because it does draw people. But we didn't have, when we planted the church in Coeur d'Alene area, Post Falls, we only had four people. We had three months salary. We had no video projector. We had nobody who played an instrument. Uh, we had one guy that played a guitar that he had learned the year before in a guitar class. We had, we had no children's ministry equipment, so our people got together and brought their scrap lumber together, and they made the children's tables with scrap lumber, and we painted it blue. We had nothing. No signs, nothing. We couldn't put on a good show. But what we could do was we could raise up people, start them in small groups, release them to make small groups, and we started down that path. And it was so funny how it happened. It just took off. Because, honestly, Christians are hungry to actually be loved and cared for and to be taught and to be trusted and to be released. They're not hungry to uh, attend a show every once in a while. And, you know, even a good messenger, you get a little tired of of the same old show. It better be good. If you rely on your show, it better be good and it better keep on changing because people get bored quick. So, I want to ask you the question. Which model most looks like yours? About uh, a year ago, something happened that's really interesting. And the way you can always tell is you just assess. Think about this. Uh, before a service, we, we celebrate every week baptisms. How many of you have been to one of our services? Okay, there's several of you here. Every week we say we had, uh, last, last week we had 16, the week before that 16, the week, no, last week we had 8, then 16, 16. Those are baptisms every week. And we, we used to do them in all the services, but when we went to five services, they got too many, uh, you know, and not too many. We had such a t- short time span between the services, we had to get people in and out, and so we, now we do it at the second service on Friday night and the third service on Sunday. Well, in one of the services, before one of the services, I found out that one of our home group leaders had had, uh, I believe it was 11, 10 or 11 baptisms at the river, and they never told us. It's a home group that had 10 or 11 baptisms at the river. And I, so I went up to him and I go, dude, what are you doing? I mean, I'm glad you're baptizing people, but at least let us know that you're doing it. And he's, oh, okay, sorry. So I got up in the church that weekend and I said, I said, hey, I just found out 
that we had either 10 or 11 baptisms in one of our home groups and they never told me. People just started clapping, you know, yay. And, I, and I'm like, that's great. But for those of you who are out there baptizing people left and right, could you please at least tell us? So, so after service, we got this guy named Bob. He's about 80 years old. And he is one of the most precious men of God you will ever see in your life. He is a disciple-making machine. And uh, he comes up to me afterwards, and he's got, you know, like his eyes are a little misty. He's like, Jim, I just, I just want to ask you for your forgiveness. And I said, what, 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 Bob? What could you have possibly done? He goes, Jim, in this last year, we baptized 17 people in our small group, and I didn't tell you. Please forgive me. <laughs> and I said, Bob, if that's what you got, I was playing. I mean, I do want to know when you baptize people. All right? That would be great to know. But I praise God you're out there doing it. Do you see what I'm saying? See, now you're getting them what they need, and there's stuff going on out here. They're experiencing God out here, and it doesn't come through you. It's them. You've released them. A lot of people put together structure, and it's the, here's the people, and they're between them and God. And we believe in the, Do we not believe? Is this one of the concepts of of uh, the restoration movement. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Do we not believe in the priesthood of all believers? Do we? We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Do we not believe that? Well, then why do we get so freaked out when we raise people up to the point where they start doing stuff without our permission? Now, if you discipled them well, the worst thing that's going to happen is they actually baptize 17 people without your permission. Right? And does, sometimes does it get out of control? Well, when did that not happen in the church? Why was Paul writing to Corinth? What things were they doing that he had to straighten out, even though he had discipled them? Why did Paul write Galatians? Why did Jude write the book of Jude? I wanted to write to you about this, but I have to exhort you to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contest for the faith. Contend for the faith, excuse me. What was going on? We're going to have to, to interject all the time, but our job is to raise them up and release them. And then they just storm the community. Did you know that Christianity was supposed to be viral? Like, a, like the cold, the common cold. Hachoo! One person to the next. Instead of your people, hey, uh, I, I'd like to share with you about Jesus, but I don't really know enough about it. So how about this? I'm going to have you come to the church so that Jim could do the, the call, and you'll come forward and pray with Jim, and then they'll baptize you. And then they'll say, you can go to one of their classes. Because I couldn't disciple you, even though I did invite you to church, and I know you, I'm not mature enough to actually disciple you. But I am. I, but I, what I can do is I have a job. My job is to invite people to church. Because I'm too stupid to be able to disciple people myself. We're stealing their blessing when we allow them to think that way. And they cannot live vicariously through us. It's good. 
Jim, I want to uh, just uh, kind of press a little bit on this model to the right here. By the way, in your notes, it's uh, Ephesians 4, which says uh, talks about leadership roles for God's people. That uh, if you're a church leader, your job is to prepare God's people so God's people do the work of the ministry. So it's based on that. It's also based on the model of Jesus. Um, and so I want to talk about that for a second. Because here is uh, what I want to say. I'm going to say this tonight, but I want to say it now. Some people, so I, I'm in uh, church planting circles across the United States and Canada, and some people have said, well, what Jim's talking about, that'll work in some areas but not others. Um, I've had some people say that stuff won't work in Canada. That stuff won't work in Calgary. And I said, you have got to be kidding. Now, the reason I say you've got to be kidding is because I actually believe that this model is more biblical than the other two. But more importantly, not just Ephesians 4, uh, we want to go back and ask what method of community did Jesus show us? So talk to us about that. All right, well, let's, let's do this for a minute. Let's back up. And let's remember the Garden of Eden for a minute. In the Garden of Eden, when did God say it is not good? It's not good for man to be alone. Was man alone when he said that? He had God. He wasn't alone. In other words, God didn't even think he was enough. One of the things that bothers me about the Christian faith is we talk about the gospel, meaning uh, the gospel uh, is about me having a restored relationship with God. But we leave out the fact that all the law and the prophets is summed up in two commandments. They ask, what is the greatest commandment? What was it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets are summed up in loving God and loving others. In the, in the garden, God said, yes, it's great that you've got me, but you need more. You need companionship, relationship. Now, I want you to, th- some of you are processing that a little bit. I can look your eyes growing. Is that heresy? Um, let, me, let me say this. God knew exactly how he made people. He's pretty familiar with that, right? He's, he's familiar with our design. He knows how he made us and he knows what we need. He believes we need relationship with other believers. He believes we need to be a family, a body. First John says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, what? Then you have fellowship, koinonia, deep abiding relationship with one another. The result of walking with God is a re- we've been disconnected from God because of sin. We're restored to relationship with God through Jesus Christ, reconciled to God. And therefore now, 
as we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have, the result is, fellowship with one another. For instance, we all believe that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as a body, but we all believe that we've been repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, so you'll receive what? The indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Think about that for a minute. Every one of those fruits is relational. Love for who? The result of the Spirit in your life, love for who? Kindness towards who? Patience towards who? Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Your love for one another. John 17 says, that uh, my prayer is not just for them, meaning the disciples, but for us. And he goes on to say, if we will be one, then the world will know. See, the greatest testimony of our faith is not that God blesses us so we don't have any financial issues, like uh, the prosperity gospel people say, or that, that, you know, that none of us are sick. The greatest testimony of our faith, according to Scripture, is our ability to be in relationship in a broken, sinful world that has destroyed relationship between God and man and between man and man. Because of the Holy Spirit's work in us, we are relational. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread, to prayer, and to, and to fellowship. They met together in the temple courts from house to house daily, sold their possessions of goods to give to whoever had need. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. Listen, in a broken and lonely world, every non-Christian song is about love. All I need is love. For a broken... They need relationship like they need water. They were built for it. Relationship with God and relationship with others. You know the problem is, folks? They know they need it. They just don't think they're going to find it in the church. They don't think they're going to find relationship in the church. You know why? Because they've been there. Confessing your sins one to another. Carrying each other's burdens. Looking past each other's faults. Forgiving one another? Oh no, it's bounced from church to church. I'm mad at that person. I'm not going to resolve it. There's no Matthew 18. We're not really family. I'm going over there. Be open and honest? No, if I, if I uh, say, hey, I've got a problem, it'll be on the prayer chain. You see, here's what I'm saying to you. A disciple of Jesus, a mature disciple of Jesus, has learned to love and to be loved. That's the process of maturing. That's why Paul said, you can know all mysteries, but if you have not love, you are nothing. You are a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. Our theology, the fruit of the Spirit in our life, leads to a, the most should lead to the relational people that God intended us to be. And when a, when a world is lonely and broken, they want in. They're willing to do anything to have a relationship. Does this make any sense to you? So why are we about small groups? 
Why are, because in small groups, in small number of people, you start to have relationship. You start to get to know each other. You know each other's story. You minister to each other. You care about each other. And in that relationship, mature disciple makers help you grow in your walk with your kids, in your walk with your wife, in your work relationship. You're being discipled. And as the fruit of the Spirit is growing in you, you're loving God and loving others and they're loving you. And that is really attractive to a lost and lonely world. Well, yeah, why did Jesus have 12 disciples? Could he have had more? Probably. But he knew we couldn't. And he was setting a model. Here's something interesting for you. You guys know in John 17, did you know Jesus prayed, I have finished the work you have given me to do? I thought Jesus came to die on the cross. Well, ultimately we know that. What about his mission had he completed in John 17 in the garden? Uh, in the garden? He'd made disciples. All they needed now was the Holy Spirit that would come when he ascended. And now, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go and make disciples. You know how? You saw me do it. You know the components of it. See, so often we listen to the story of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven, but we don't look at the method of Jesus for making disciples in the story. Like, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount. How many were there? The crowds came, and what does it say? He called his disciples to himself. We picture him doing the Sermon on the Mount to thousands. He was talking to 12. The components of discipleship, accountability, authenticity, relationship. We're going to talk about this again later. It takes a small group. Relationship, knowing people and being known. You can't know 100 people in here. You can't know what they're dealing with at one time. And you might, your job isn't just to know them and care for them, it's to make sure that you create an environment by which people are knowing each other so that they don't need to call you in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. They can call their home group leader. That's one of the problems that I've seen. You have the minister up there. That's one of the problems that I've seen over the years. you got a congregation of 100 people, you got one individual standing up there, one personality. How can he meet the needs of 100 different personalities? It just doesn't work. You know, we don't like them. Well, I like them. Well, why don't we get rid of them? No, let's keep them. And these are the kinds of things that go on, you know. Why do you read of house churches? We haven't really examined that. I think you're doing it. Well, I would say this. I am all about... In the context of the church, there's things that the larger church can do that the little church cannot. And there are things that the little church, the house church movement can do that the bigger church cannot. I am not for house church alone without uh, organization. Much of the house church movement, I don't know how you do it, but it's called the organic church in America. And the organic church is all about uh, house church movement, but really it, it, it flies in the face of organization and accountability. And God is the God of order. 
Organization is his idea. So organization has to be a part. Eldership, uh, administration, those giftings are, are, are his idea. So I am not for going to just pure house church model unless we have a persecution that hits that takes out the larger church context, which may happen very soon. But there are things that we can do together collectively that we could not do with just the small church, uh, house group, small group. But there are things in that small group that can happen that, n- that will never happen in the body, in the larger context of the body. And to understand which part happens in which way and how you bring it all together is very important. Let me just uh, uh, tag on to that then. Um, behind relational discipleship are these two things, of course. Relationships, this agape type of uh, relationships, and then this commitment out of relationships, discipleship. When you look at Jesus... You see that Jesus uh, focused on 12. Of that 12, by the way, there was three he was very intimate with, right? Peter, James, and John. What you find, uh, interestingly enough, because I've looked at this, is that in really healthy environments, that unit of 12 is really well-functioning, but typically the leader will be with uh, one or two or three of that subset in terms of more intense discipling. So right now in the small group that I'm leading, um, I'm discipling the guy who's my apprentice. So we debrief after every small group meeting. Every Thursday morning we have a time of discipleship where I'm trying to help him to grow and to, to minister to other people, to lead, to study with people, and all those kinds of things. So the idea is you have a small group environment like Jesus, and yet you have these discipling relationships with the Peter, James, and John types. And then, of course, beyond that, you're going to have other, uh, other uh, folks attracted to it. But the fundamental argument is that that model is the best model of discipleship and of doing church. Now, I would say, remember, a lot of pastors get intimidated by me when I talk about the purpose and point of a small group because in their mind, what they're hearing me say is that there's no place then... And I get this question all the time for the broader context of a worship service with multiple groups meeting together. They're like, well, what's the purpose of uh, the church service? That's a good question. We do evaluate that. But do I think there is a purpose for it? Absolutely. I'm not saying get away from the larger context. What I'm saying is the larger context by itself does not make disciples. And I'm definitely not saying you should allow home groups to happen without accountability. No. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, you get a bunch of people together and it's just for the purpose of hanging out. And there's not clear intentional purpose for it. That's like a 50-ton, megaton bomb you're putting together there of flesh. You put a bunch of immature Christians together in a small group and you're just waiting for something to go wrong. There has got to be intentional purpose for it and accountability for it to function as it ought to function. But we'll get to that. Other questions? Yeah. I'm unclear in the three you were talking. I'm going to bring around the microphone, by the way, for the sake of the recording. 
I'm still unclear on the three you're talking about of the 12. It's not as though the three are discipling the other nine of the 12. And you're talking about the, the importance of the three also, you know. Yeah. I'm unclear as to their role makes them so important. I mean, yes, I understand the three, Peter, John, and so forth, were important in Jesus' uh, ministry, and yet they weren't ministering to the other nine. So how, how do they fit in? Yeah. Uh, for us, the way it looks is like this. I've got uh, 15 in my small group. In my small group, I have two emerging leaders that are going to lead small groups, and I have... Uh, another one who has great potential, but I'm not sure. He has great skill, physical skill, but his spiritual walk does not measure up to his physical skill. Do you understand what I'm saying? And until, that, that makes him dangerous. Until he's spiritually uh, caught up with his skill sets, he's dangerous. It means he can lead people away in his flesh. So, uh, I've got 12 people that can serve in children's ministry, they can serve in, you know, they can disciple in their homes, they can do that, but there are some of those people that have leadership skill sets to lead the next group. If you go back to Peter and John, uh, 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 Peter, James, and John, those three all became the, the highest profile leaders of the church when Jesus left, other than Paul. Because of their capabilities to lead the next group. Yeah, it's a very, very important clarification. Uh, there's a guy, um, <clears throat> Robert Coleman wrote a book in the early 60s called The Master's Plan of Evangelism. It really should have been called The Master's Plan of Discipleship because in it he lays down Jesus' methodology. And one of the things he did is he focused, uh, in fact, somebody figured it out and said that Jesus spent 40, I don't know how they did this, but it was some New Testament scholars with nothing better to do. And they uh, decided that uh, Jesus spent 47% of his time with the 12, and of that, a disproportionate uh, percentage of his time with those he was raising up as leaders. So that's the fundamental uh, perspective behind relational discipleship, is that that should be, in our churches, a normative model. Let me say this. When you don't intentionally, your job as a pastor, uh, I have people, this is what pastors do all the time. They come to our seminars and they go, all right, I need to go home and start a small group. And I'm like, yeah, you do need to go home and start a small group. But here's my problem. If you're the pastor of a church, it's not your job just to go do a small group. It's your job to make sure that your people have what they need to be disciples. So it's not just you taking 150 people and doing a small group with them. Your job is to organize and systemize in such a way that everyone can be in a small group. Now, it may start that you choose six leaders and then you, you, you train them up and then you send them out to run six small groups. But you just being this one, in one small group and everybody else kind of does their own thing, no, your job is to organize in such a way that everybody's in relationship. Let me just tell you this, okay? Uh, how many of you know who Larry Crabb is? Did you know that he wrote in his book that 90% of the people he deals with could have been helped by a good friend? They just didn't have one. They'd rather pay $130 an hour to get help because they, they don't have anybody in the church they can trust. Most pastors don't counsel. 
Most bigger church pastors don't counsel. They send them to us to either the secular or the Christian counseling organizations. Since we instituted small groups, our counseling load has gone down 80%. Do you know why? Because they're talking things through with their friends in their small groups. They're getting counseling before it's, you know, most of the counseling, what happens is that you guys know this. They come in and they're like, all right, we're on the verge of divorce. Help us or we're done. And it took years to get there. What if we'd have been on it at the beginning before it ever got to that point? What if we were preventative rather than reactionary? What if these people were talking with people, mature believers, and they were ministering to each other and stuff's getting handled as it goes? What if there's problems in the church and you're, you're mature disciple makers, you've got babysitters, so to speak, in every corner of the church going, up, oh, let's deal with this right now. What, you see what I'm saying? Now, how much do your leaders grow when they actually get to serve and minister? They become real leaders. Do you know how many funerals we had last year that were done by, by uh, volunteer small group leaders? Funerals. That were done. Somewhere in the vicinity of a dozen. Weren't even done by pastors. We went. Do you know how many weddings are done? In our church? Where we have to go and sign the paper. Because in America you got to have a, 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 you know, a pastor do it. But we're not even doing it. We're sitting in the back. Because the home group leaders are doing it. The coach is doing it. Some of you are going. Wait a minute. That's our job. Should it be? How much counseling is happening in your church? Christians counseling Christians, growing in their own faith because they're being used by God, catching things early because they know these people. How long does it take in your church for somebody to get to you for counseling? And how long does it take, how much counseling do they need before they're actually fixed? I can't counsel 8,000 people. There's no way. I couldn't meet with all the marriages in trouble in one week if I started at 8 in the morning and got done at at 4 in the morning. Right? No. No. Because no one would ever get up and say, hey, I'm struggling because your credibility comes from your perfection. Sinner. You know how many pastors I know that they come in with their staffs, and, and this is so sad, but one of their staffs has come to them and said, hey, I'm struggling with my marriage, and they say either get it figured out or you're fired. Or if you go get counseling, I'll fire you because you're supposed to have it all together. Are you kidding me? I mean, I'm not a violent man anymore, but I'd like to slap somebody's face. You can't be real. My son's a drug addict. He's just got out of his second drug rehabilitation program, and he's doing great. And I had to get up in front of the church and say, listen, I'm struggling. Is that not okay? If it's not okay, then that tells everybody else they better be quiet about their stuff. They better handle it on their own. I don't want to go to that church. That doesn't appeal to me at all. You want to know why people go to bars? 
Because everybody knows their name. Because they can talk about anything. What can you talk about at church? And if not, why? Why not? So the idea that... that uh, oh, go ahead. John, then I'm going to jump in. Absolutely. The, but, so the question for the recording is, uh, in other words, to lead a group, don't you have to have had somebody model that for you? Yeah. In our group, you cannot be a leader of a group unless you've been an apprentice of a group. And, and in our, in our, the way we do it is our leaders are training their apprentices. Right. Well, okay. I would say you, you said something. You said, don't you have to have been in a group before you can train to lead a group? Before I'm going to call you a trainer, I'm going to make sure that you've led a group. But I am going to let you lead a group, even though you haven't led one. Especially, remember, we, we started with four people. All of a sudden, it's... I remember we went from 800 to 1,600 in four weeks. And I went, okay, this has happened so fast. I got up in front of the people. I said, everybody in this room who's been a Christian for more than five years, stand up. They all stood up. I said, all right, after service, you're coming forward. You're our new small group leaders. Was that ideal? No. Did God use it? Yes. You see, you see what I'm saying? Sometimes the, the necessity is you just got to gotta step out in faith and do it. But if I'm going to call you a trainer, I'm going to make sure you've led a group and you did a good job. But if I'm going to let you lead a group for your first time and try and fail, the way you're going to get... Let me say it this way. How many of you... I'm a, I'm a wrestling coach. What if for wrestling... Every, every week, and this is, I don't know how many are in here, 50. This is about how many I had in my first wrestling team. What if I, what I did for, uh, for wrestling is I came in, all you kids right here, and I brought a partner up, and for an hour and, a, hour and 10 minutes, I just shot a double leg. I'm going to show you guys a double leg. I'm going to shoot a double leg. Just sit there and watch me shoot a double leg. All right, now we're going to run. Come back next week or ne- uh, tomorrow, and we're gonna, I'm going to show you a single leg. And I just kept showing them moves, never actually let them get in groups and practice it and do it. How many of you believe that the people been watching me do a double leg and a single leg would actually be able to hit it on an opponent? How do they actually get good at doing it? By doing it. See, my, co- my job as a coach was to go, all right, I got 50 kids in here. They all are in different stages of development. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get me six coaches that I work with. I'm going to break the groups up into about uh, you know, nine or ten kids apiece, maybe a little less. I'm going to show a move. Then I'm going to break them into groups. They're going to pair up. I'm going to have a coach with my six to eight kids, and we're going to watch. And I did it every single week. I would show a move. They'd practice the move with coaching to, to be there. I'd come, they'd come back. I'd show a move, right? That's what I did. 
I didn't expect to show him a move, to tell him how to do a move, never give him a place to practice the move, and expect them to actually be able to wrestle. My job as a coach was not only to show them the move, but to create the environment where they actually got to practice the move and actually use the move. Most pastors just come in and go, let me tell you about the move. Let me tell you the move. Now, go out and do the move. Or come back next week and I'll tell you about a different move. Where is your... My job is to promote, to provide for you the opportunity to actually do something. Can you get good at it by sitting there watching me do it? Is there an amount of failure in any sport that you try? Are you going to, in soccer or hockey or whatever, you're going to try it and fail. You're going to fall down, get back up, try again. You're going to have a coach go, that was good, good job. You need to work on that right there. Isn't that going to happen? What? There is no sports team in the United States that would try to do any, to try to teach anybody anything the way the church tries to teach discipleship as it currently is set up. There is not one team anywhere that would expect their people to be able to play hockey or football or any of it the way we try to teach the church. Come next week, let's put on a show, stand up, sit down, eat a little cracker, go home, till next week, and oh yeah, you can go and read about it in your book, but where's the chance for people to actually get involved in people's lives and try this stuff? Because you can't get good at the game while you're sitting on the bench. And if we said, well, until you get really good at it, you can't get out there on the field. Well, then when do they get out on the field? When they get really good. How do you get good on it? Well, you get out in the field, but they're not letting me on the field until I get on the field. It's the silliest thing I've ever seen. And then we wonder why no one can wrestle. Oh, they're good critics. Well, that's pretty good wrestling. I know what that move is. They could never actually hit it on anybody. So funny. I was watching football. What night was it with my sons? All my sons play football. And uh, it was Monday night football. And uh, quarterback throws the ball. Uh, Tony Romo threw the ball. And this guy catches it, gets hit, and drops it. And my wife goes, you idiot! My son Jesse, he's in high school football right now, goes, Mom, you don't have a clue. Until you've been out there trying to catch a ball when a guy knocks your block off, you have no right saying diddly squat. And she's like, oh, you're right. You can't make everybody a critic and then expect them not to criticize. When they get up and they actually have to play, it's like in football. You know, you got these fat guys saying, throw the ball, he's open. We'll put them out there with 300-pound guys chasing them around. They can't see over and see how well they throw. Then they'd be going, dude, I understand your pain. You couldn't see him. <laughs> right? If all you do is let your people sit down, of course they're going to criticize. But if you give them a chance to fail and they get good and then they come up to you and go, dude, yeah, I told, when you say something wrong or you didn't say it quite right, they're like, oh, man, I know what happened. He was talking in front of all those people and he got nervous. He didn't say it right. Why? How do they know that? Been there. Got tongue, tongue twisted. Didn't know what, you know. They've blown it. They didn't know what to do. Our job is to make wrestlers, not to make spectators. But the way we do church makes spectators. So, Jim, in your small group, you've got two, maybe three guys that you're trying to raise up as leaders. You're trying to disciple everybody in the group. 
but there's some you're trying to disciple up where they could be leaders. I want to show you a model <clears throat> that kind of uh, walks this out. And uh, we showed it here at church yesterday, but for all of you, and we can get you a copy of this. Um, so if you think, like, <clears throat> here's how I think of it in terms of the, the guy in my small group. I've actually got a couple of guys who, who can be leaders, but one guy right now in particular, this is what we're doing. So I start off with, and I've been really explicit, I actually gave him this slide and he knows exactly what I'm doing. Because I want to train him so that when he's leading a group, he's going to do the same thing with the next guy. So I'm just like, you know, I, I debrief and I'm very intentional. So it's first I do, you watch, and then we discuss. So our group meets Tuesday night, so I, I lead it. The, the first couple of times I start off, I lead it, <coughs> he watches, and then we debrief. Uh, usually before he goes to bed. He calls me right after he puts his kids in bed um, before he's going to go and spend time with his wife. So it's like a, just a quick debrief. Next is I do, you help, we discuss. So he's helping me do it, and then we talk about it. Third step is you do. He's doing it now. I'm helping when he's not sure what to do or there's somebody you know maybe who's really immature in the group and they're dominating the conversation or they're not really into what we're doing. They don't really care. And then we discuss. Then third is you do, I watch, we discuss. And the fifth step is you and I both do it again with someone else. So it's this continually raising up leaders. And then think about it. You go from one group to two groups, two groups to four groups, four groups to eight groups, eight groups to 16 groups, 16 to 32. And the next thing you know, you've got this movement going on because this is the DNA of multiplying discipleship. Yes? When you're using a model like this, what's the typical time period between like step one and step five? Jim, I'm going to let you jump in here with this. It depends on where they came from. For instance, we got this guy named Tony Ornelas. He's 86. He's still leading a small group. Every year he says, I just don't know if I ought to step down and let somebody else lead, but, ah, oh, no, I'll do it again. You know, he takes a break during the summer. And... Uh, when he started leading small groups for us about eight years ago, we had our group of leaders in a big room like this. And I said, Tony, stand up. And he's, him and his wife, and they stood up. And Jean is her name, Ornelas, and they both stood up. And I said, Tony, how long have you been in a church? I've been in a church 65 years. I said, Tony, you've been leading, you decided to lead a small group. You've even branched it this year. How come you didn't serve before? No one ever asked me. So what did you do? Well, I was an usher for a while. You know, I went to Sunday school classes. No one ever asked me. Did you know the word? Yep. Now, that guy will go from one to five real fast. He's untapped potential. Knows the word. See what I'm saying? Uh, Then there are guys who are unsaved, or just getting saved, new believers who have skill sets in that they've learned from the world on how to... um, uh, you know, do this in their apprentice work. Like, for instance, builders do this all the time. Journeymen, they, they know how this whole process works, but they're not spiritually mature enough to do it, so you don't want to release them just based on their skill sets. But uh, sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it takes two years, three years. Sometimes you find out three years into it, this guy's never going to make that next step spiritually. So you just you just 
don't do it. But there are a lot of people that are sitting in churches that could be used and tapped into right now if they were allowed and encouraged to step out and serve. We have tons of women leading small groups. We have no women leading small groups where men and women are together. The Bible says, I do not allow women to teach or take authority over a man. When, so. you, when you think back on these three models, you've got the showman, right? So they're not raising up leaders. It's all dependent on a great preacher and great music. The second one here, it's dependent on a guy who really loves people. And what limits it is the amount of time that he has to love people. This model is based on continually raising up leaders. It's discipling people, raising up leaders who have been discipled, who go out and do the same thing. So you're literally raising up an army. And that's the difference between the three models. Do you you work with your wife as a team? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We work together. But when you ask me, do I have a woman... Leading the group, not if men and women are both present in the group. If we have ton, we have so many women's small groups, it's not even funny. We have a very powerful women's ministry. But uh, the older women are to teach the younger women. Scripture says, and uh, so again, I believe what the Bible actually says. We have a problem with groups not wanting to. Oh, we have every kind of problem you could ever possibly imagine. You put you guys put a system on that board and it works great until you actually put people into it. With people come mouths and wherever there's a mouth, there's a problem waiting to happen. I see what, what needs to happen. The problem is I need to be apprenticed myself. And uh, who's going to do that? So let me ask you this question. What would you have done on that Sunday when I had all of our people who had been pastor or, or have been Christians for more than five years stand up? And then I said, okay, you're going to be a small group and you hadn't been apprenticed. What would you have done? But you stepped out in faith and said, I'm going to figure this out. Called somebody, asked some questions. So, who are you? I'm Evan Meske. What do you do? I'm a community pastor on staff at Real Life. What did you do before? I was an electrician. Darren Owens, what did you do? I was a cement worker. Brandon Ginnon, you're the executive pastor. You helped write, write a book and you're writing your second one, right? Yes. What did you do? I ran a medical office. These people are in every church sitting there, untapped. Because I'm so busy running the show, exhausted from doing all the ministering or working on my show all the time. I've got all these people in our church that God brought here to expand the kingdom, but I don't develop them. I don't see them because they're not, you know, chiseled fine diamonds. They're diamonds in the rough, and they need some some uh, some shaping. But they're right there, and they're amazing people. Yeah. Did you ask? I was just going to say you also have that support, right, from your church leadership. Like you're not on your own. You can have the other small leaders. Yeah. Yeah. By the time I I get to the hospital, there's a home group leader, a coach there, and everybody from their small group. I'm superfluous. I'm an added maybe bonus, maybe not. What are you doing here? That's the question I get all the time. Oh well, okay. See ya. There's a question over here. Uh, 
Say it again. Do you help? Do you find that the model helps uh, prevent burnout from your leaders? Well, the problem of burnout means that you've got so much going out that you never have anything going in. If you always have to be the answer guy and all the work rests on you and you never are being poured into, you're not doing life with anybody, you're kind of separated and alone and you're carrying all the burden, you burn out. If part of a fulfilling Christian life is relationship with other people that you can bear burdens with and, and confess your sins to and you don't have that, that means you're internalizing it. it. means you're dealing with it. You feel alone. The devil loves to play with you when you're alone and in the dark. But if you keep everything in the light, confessing your sins and working with people and carrying the load together, you don't suffer that burnout. You see what I'm saying? It's that the, the, the star model leads to burnout, and so does the shepherding model lead to burnout. Thanks, <clears throat> Thanks Jim. We're going to uh, finish up here in just a second. We're going to have a prayer for uh, our meal. Let me just kind of walk you back through what we've been talking about <clears throat> Uh, so we started off with a question uh, about um, discipleship, that the fundamental thing that God wants our churches and our communities to be about is about making disciples. We've talked about the different models of leadership in that, and then we've gone back to the model of Jesus. How did Jesus raise up uh, leaders in his community, and how did those leaders then end up leading the church? How can we replicate that today? It's a model that increases the involvement of every Christian. It's not just the priesthood of all believers. It's also the ministry of all believers. And uh, as people of the book, we've said <clears throat> all along, that's, that's what we believe in. And uh, what we're suggesting here tonight is this is a real practical way to do it. I tried to bring it down to this micro level uh, because uh, when we come back after supper, Jim's going to talk about creating systems and then he's going to focus on how to help people from who are not born again to being born again through the infant stage to the child stage to the adult stage and to the parenting stage. What we've got up here on the board is somebody who's at a parenting stage who's going to be discipling others. So hopefully it will all tie in together after supper and uh, it will be uh, beneficial to you. Kurt, can I ask you to uh, say a prayer for us? And uh, we're going to um, move down into the uh, gymnasium area. Um, do any special instructions? <laughs> That's good, Kelly. Okay, we'll start back up at 7 o'clock. Kurt, if you'd lead us. Let's pray. God, thanks so much uh, for Jim and for Bobby and what they're teaching us uh, tonight and just uh, kind of exposing that... Uh, and showing us that this is not a new concept, this is an old concept, and just uh, motivate us to become disciple-makers and uh, to teach those uh, whom are in our care to make disciples of others and just uh, energize us uh, through this. Um, thank you for the food. It's a, it's a small token of your grace that you give to us every day, uh, most uh, sufficiently in Christ. In Christ's name, amen.